And now it's Geico's Motorcycle Rules of the Road. Before you ride, make sure your mirrors are clean and adjusted properly. And if you're going on a group ride, make sure the lead biker knows where they're going. Uh, Ed, quick question. Where are you taking us? Oh, I have no idea. Well, am I the leader? <laughs> because I was uh, following that dude with the red helmet. Where, Where is he? And the rule to saving on motorcycle insurance is, in 15 minutes, Geico could save you 15% or more. The General Insurance presents Ordering a Sandwich with Shaq and Hall of Fame announcer Michael Buffer. I'm going to have roast beef. What do you want, Michael? Let's get ready for pastrami on rye. Turns out, Michael Buffer talks like that all the time. And it turns out, The General is a quality insurance company that's been saving people money for nearly 60 years. Spicy. Dijon Mustard. For a great low rate and nearly 60 years of quality coverage, make the right call and go with The General. Some restrictions apply. All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Maureen Callahan, and she just published a book this month, July 2nd, 2019. The title of the book is American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century. I just uh, finished reading the book. It's an excellent book, a riveting book, a terrifying book as well. Tell her terrifying information. She has uh, superb reviews on Amazon. All five stars, deservedly so, and she just told me the book has hit the New York Times bestseller list, so uh, that's great news. And uh, basically, before we get started, maybe Maureen can talk a little bit about herself and how, uh, Maureen, how you became interested in this terrifying subject. Oh my goodness. Um, I first came across a small story uh, about this case uh, in... December 2012, and the second paragraph of this article detailed a modus operandi that I had never heard of, but what surprised me was to learn that it was a modus operandi that the FBI's top mind had also never heard of. Um, I then realized that uh, not only that, but the federal government had had him in custody already for nine months and had kept his existence a secret uh, despite his killing spree over the past, the official line is 14 years, I believe it's a lot longer than that, all over the United States of America. And so I thought, there are going to be multiple, multiple mysteries here uh, and a lot of threads to pull on. And um, when I began investigating, uh, that, in fact, was the case. But I have to tell you, William, I I never could have predicted what I was uncovering. Yeah, it's very shocking. It's an incredible story. So uh, maybe what we can do is talk about the how the, the first abduction and uh, disappearance took place and where that happened and what it involved? Uh, I'll preface this by saying prior to this incident, uh, the subject of my book, Israel Keys, uh, was not known to law enforcement in any way. Uh, He was a a, uh, self-employed contractor who lived with his uh, long-term girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter, in a beautiful suburb of, of Anchorage, Alaska, um, one that is most populated by judges and lawyers, actually. Um, so the story begins in uh, February 2012, the night of February 1st, 2012. And a teenage barista named Samantha Koenig, 18 years old, goes missing uh, from her coffee kiosk. Um, now, in Anchorage, these coffee kiosks are extremely common. They are tiny little shacks. Uh, they abut the sides of, of very well-traveled roads. Um, the culture is such that prior to Samantha's vanishing, uh, nobody ever thought it was in any way a risk to have young, pretty girls working alone in these coffee kiosks. Um, And in the summer, they they would make them wear bikinis often. Um, Needless to say, Samantha's disappearance changed all that. 
she wasn't reported missing until the next morning when a barista shows up to open the shop, the shop, the, the kiosk, and, and find Samantha's not there and there's no money in the till. And the police are called in, uh, and at first their reaction is uh, uh, a little tunnel vision. They think they know what this is. This is a teenage girl who has had a rough background, issues with drugs, seemed to have been fighting with her boyfriend, some angry text messages have been sent from her phone. She took the money, she ran off, she's partying, she's blowing off steam, she'll be back. Uh, and it's not until later that night, uh, nearly 24 hours since she has vanished, that the Anchorage Police Department uh, gets its first look at the surveillance video from inside the kiosk. And you can see a tall man uh, standing at the window. The windows have no barrier whatsoever. It's just air. Um, and he, he looks to be ordering something, and he's talking to Samantha. And then suddenly he springs like a cheetah into this kiosk. Uh, and uh, inside, they stay for another 10 minutes. Um, and then they leave. And one of the, uh, the more seasoned veteran investigators who was assigned to this case, he didn't feel so alarmed either at, at the outset because he thought, you know, they're in there talking to each other for 17 minutes. What on earth are they talking about? You know, a, a suspect who's going to abduct someone isn't going to risk, you know, nearly 20 minutes of exposure. Um, and uh, the case goes cold. And six weeks go by and uh, a ransom note comes in demanding tens of thousands of dollars be deposited into Samantha's account. Uh, the author of the ransom note says that he or she has Samantha's debit card um, and attached is a proof of life photo. Samantha is wearing uh, her hair in braids. She's made up. She's looking straight at the camera. There's a newspaper with uh, the date of the edition visible, February 13th, 2012, which was considered a proof of life photo. Um, yet uh, that same investigator who wondered about the 17 minutes of, of talk uh, took one look at that photo and said, Samantha's dead. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, but even still, the, the rest of the agents believed she was alive. Some of them told me they maybe wanted to believe it um, more than they were allowing their training and experience to kick in. Uh, they called in an expert in snuff films to examine the photograph. Even that expert could not tell. Uh, and so money is deposited into the account. About $30,000 goes in. And... It's not until the card begins pinging because the FBI has now put a tracker on that ATM card. It begins pinging in the lower 48 in a very small town in New Mexico in the dead of night, and suddenly you have the FBI and law enforcement in Anchorage and the FBI and law enforcement all over the Southwest it's like they're lighting up. It, it, it's like they are, they are on the chase. They are trying to track down an unknown individual. They can't even tell what kind of vehicle he's in. He's very good at avoiding surveillance cameras. Uh, they, they, they just know he's out there, but, but they don't know what he looks like or what vehicle he's driving or where he's headed. Right. Um, and if this is like, yeah. you know, it's like three weeks or after she was abducted. So something very strange is happening. It involved these FBI agents, very experienced ones, uh, Texas Ranger as well. So, yeah, uh, I think that there was a withdrawal in Wilcox, Arizona, and Lordsburg, New Mexico, I think my notes show. So, yeah, something very strange is happening. So the the, the federal authorities are working with the authorities in these lower states trying to figure out that they, they want to track this person down, right? Yes, and they're, they're able to discern some important details. You know, um, 
whoever's using this card, the ATM machines in, in Wilcox, Arizona, and Lordsburg, New Mexico, they're very, very close together geographically. So this suspect is, 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 is learning, okay, I, I can only withdraw $400 a day. So it's somebody who probably doesn't have experience withdrawing that amount of money typically, right? Uh, so I'm going to wait until midnight, and then I'm going to cross the border into another state, and then it's going to be 12, 20 a.m., and I can withdraw another $500. And then back in the car and moving along and along and along. So they're realizing that they are dealing with someone who's very smart. Um, so, yeah, so the, so the FBI agents in Anchorage are feeling quite anxious because they're having to rely on law enforcement down south. They have no control anymore over whether or not the suspect is going to get caught. Um, a bolo, a be on the lookout, lands in the inbox of a Texas ranger named Steve Rayburn. And Steve Rayburn looks at this bolo which says that the FBI is looking for a suspect described only as a middle-aged white male who seems tall. He is driving the most commonly rented vehicle in the United States of America. He is traveling around one of the largest states in the United States of America. Find that guy. And Steve Rayburn and his team find that guy. And it's a roadside stop in a town minutes before he's about to get on a route that is leading to the interstate where he can just fly off. And a veteran corporal named Brian Henry, who had 22 years of traffic stops behind him, pulls this guy over and asks him where he's from. And he says, Alaska. In all of his time on the force, Henry had never pulled over anyone from Alaska. And in that moment, they knew. And he, I mean, he was, uh, they found a lot of things. I mean, they kept him on the side of the road for a while, but they found things that were very suspicious with him, correct? They did. Uh, I mean, he was traveling with a lot of stuff. Um, an FBI uh, field agent named Deb Ganaway uh, had also seen that bolo and made her way over to Rayburn's uh, office right before all of this this cat and mouse uh, chase of the suspect begins, and and it it, it really does play out like a movie. Um, and she's eyeballing stuff that's in the in the vehicle. She's seeing there are paper maps, physical maps um, of multiple states highlighted. Um, she's seeing rolls of cash. In, in the little pockets of, of the driver's side and passenger side door that uh, clearly were loaded with die packs with the kind of explosive that uh, is detonated after a bank robbery. Right. Um, there are smaller details. There are white tennis shoes, which are quite, it's quite a general thing to find, but they had, were able to tell that the suspect had been wearing those a lot and those ATM withdrawals. Um, in the trunk, they find some disturbing... Items. They find some transgender pornography. They find, I believe, a skull cap. Um, not like a skull cap, like a ski mask. Uh, and they find Samantha Koenig's cell phone, which has been taken apart and the battery's been ripped out. And they find Samantha's ATM card. Right. It's inside his wallet. So that's when they know they've got their guy, right? Yeah, I mean, I think even having the cell phone was uh, a pretty strong indicator. He also had this bizarre story uh, about what he was doing, which which really becomes one of the germs of, of the FBI beginning to realize who they were dealing with and, and how out of their depth even they were. Um, he's offering up a lot of unsolicited details. He's saying that he had been traveling with his young daughter and he had flown from Anchorage to Las Vegas because it was last minute and he couldn't get a flight to Texas. And then so he rented his car and he wanted to take his daughter to see the Grand Canyon. So they were driving all over the place before they got to Texas. And there's a, the lead FBI agent on this case up in Anchorage, Steve Payne, this is relayed to him in nearly real time and 
Kane is thinking that is a super goofy story. And it, it was the beginnings of, of understanding the modus operandi of Israel Keys, which involved uh, renting, you know, buying a one-way plane ticket um, and boarding a flight. He would uh, have his own cell phone off, battery out. He would now be using only cash. He would fly into a major hub, rent a car, drive hundreds if not thousands of miles, and bury up one of multiple kill kits he had buried all over the United States of America. These were, and are, because many still remain out there, uh, five-gallon Home Depot buckets that were filled with rope, zip ties, guns, ammunition, cash from previous bank robberies he'd committed, and Drano to accelerate human decomposition. He would dig these up. So he would dig these up, and then he would go on the hunt. And... He would, the other thing that was terrifying about him, and as far as the FBI was concerned, unprecedented, was that he had zero victim profile. You know, if you think about someone like Ted Bundy, he had a victim type. He went after young white women, long straight hair, parted down the middle, very specific. He would go after anyone, young, old, black, white, uh, rich, poor, thin, overweight, uh, alone, in a, in a pair, in a couple, uh, in broad daylight, uh, in the middle of the night from your own bedroom, uh, it, it, it didn't matter. Um, and he would take people, uh, move them to another location where he would rape, torture, and kill them. He would then take the remains to another location, preferably across a state line, dispose of the remains so expertly that he left no trace of DNA behind, and then get back in his car and put hundreds, if not thousands of miles between himself and that crime scene immediately. Yeah, it's incredible. I think there was some fact you had in your book about that one of the rental cars had something like 1,700 miles on it that he had driven which, you know, could mean that he was anywhere. I think it was from one of the rentals in, in Texas, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. And um, after they they had him in custody back in Anchorage, uh, Jeff Bell, who is, who is that seasoned veteran I was talking about, uh, he put up a map of the United States up in what they were now calling the war room uh, because they were realizing the magnitude of this case. And so Jeff took... Um, he took a scissors and a compass and some string and some thumb tacks. And he has uh, that, you know, 1,700 miles plus or minus that Keith put on his last rental car. And he starts drawing lines from where Keith was picked up to any place that would be half of that distance and that would have brought him back home. So, it's not scientific, but it's a starting point for them. And when Bell finally finishes this, he takes a step back from the map and the way he described it to me, like he was shocked. He, he said to himself, this is unbelievable because he had drawn circles from 13 states. Right. I mean, it's incredible. So the, the authorities bring him back to Anchorage and they're primarily interested in trying to figure out what happened to Samantha Koenig. And I think one of the really fascinating and, and remarkable parts of your book is this interrogation where these experienced law enforcement people are trying to get information. They don't know the, the totality of the enormity of what this person is, but how he kind of is playing with them and they're getting getting more information from them. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? Sure. Um, you know, when Keith was first arrested, Jeff Bell and uh, the lead detective from APD, Mickey Dahl, jumped on a plane, went down to Texas, got in a room with him. And Jeff Bell told me that when he walked into that room and took one look at Israel Keith, the little hairs on the back of his neck stood up. And he said, in that moment, I knew that Samantha did not have a good outcome. That was the way he phrased it. And he said it was clear from his demeanor and affect, which 
in sum and substance was basically, you are bothering me. You are interrupting my day. Uh, that he knew that Keith had done this before. So they get him back to Anchorage, and Steve Payne and Jeff Bell are wargaming out how this interrogation is going to go because even though they know he's the guy, they have a dearth of physical evidence linking Keith to Samantha. They, yes, he, he had her cell phone and he had her ATM card, but he has this wild story of someone dropping those items in his pickup truck and that's how he got them and it's outlandish and it's stupid but if he sticks to that story they have nothing they're gonna have to let him go you know they're gonna charge him with one minor minor felony which is fraud with access device and he's got no record so it's not like he's gonna see real time for that um so the stakes are very 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 high and Dean has a very um, specific way he likes to do things, and he uh, has a counterintuitive approach. You know, many agents, when they're interrogating someone and they have almost nothing on them, will come into an interrogation room with a ton of props. They'll have, like, you know, stacks of files, and they'll have, you know, boxes that they pile up, and, of course, you know, the paper in those file folders is blank and the boxes are empty but they'll come in and they'll bring in all this paraphernalia and they'll say this is everything we've got on you and Steve Payne is he, he takes a counterintuitive approach he likes to go in sit down and just very calmly say you don't get to know everything we've got on you and he finds that 99.9% of the time that works so he and Bell are wargaming this out and then Right before they're about to go in, they get a call from the top federal prosecutor in Anchorage, Alaska. And he's telling them, basically, that this is his interrogation now. And despite having no business in that room, despite having absolutely zero experience sitting across the table from a violent offender, let alone someone they suspect is a serial killer, this guy sees this case for what it is, a potential star-making, career-making case. And he's going to Bigfoot this interrogation. And they have to figure out what they're going to do, Steve Payne and Jeff Bell. And I, I put the full interrogation in the book for several reasons. Um, and and, and, and but as an aside, the, the government has kept the confession to, to Samantha's abduction and murder a secret for the past five or six years. I obtained it through a source who wishes to remain anonymous, but there's no record of it anywhere. Wow, now, the incredible. federal government would probably say, you know, it's out of respect for the victim and her family, but if the, if the concern is really the graphic details of what was done, those are easily redacted. And what the government, I think, was really intent on hiding was how out of control this case was from the very beginning. And how close this federal prosecutor came to blowing it. Yeah, I I think you really point that out in the book. I mean, there's clearly like some things going on, some politics going on with the federal agency. I was shocked to find out in the book that the government redacted or has kept secret 45,000 pages of information on keys due to national security. That was a shocker. When I read that, I was like, what? And maybe we can get into that in a second. But the interrogation really was really something else because Keyes was slowly kind of, he thought he was playing games, but he was also revealing things about himself. Like he acted, he said once, like, I did this to seem like a normal person, which I think, you know, you point out in your book, that's a very strong tell. A very strong tell. Him making that admission is him telling the agent, I know I'm not a normal person. He, I say in the book that he kind of knew how to deliver a cliffhanger because he would leave some of these interrogations knowing that they would just be coming back to him wanting more. And at the conclusion of the, of the Samantha confession, which takes place over two days, 
and uh, which, by the way, Detective Monique Dahl uh, 100% saves the day and elicits a full confession despite Kevin Feldes trying to fully her off the table and out of the room as well. He concludes by saying, you know, I have a lot more stories to tell. And he also tells them that they need him more than he needs them. He says to them, I am telling you right now, there is no one who knows me or who has ever known me who knows anything about me, really. I'm two different people. Yeah, he and, said he was a different person for 14 years, and he was living with a woman. He had a wife, a child. And, yeah, I mean, just incredible. Yes, and by all accounts, he was a devoted father. Um, he was a self-employed contractor, and all of his clients trusted him. They would leave him with their house keys while they were off traveling so he could come and go and do work as he pleased. They never found anything missing, not, not a thing awry. And so, you know, his arrest uh, it, it truly shocked uh, everyone who knew and who loved him, with, with one exception, his mother. And I really, really, really wanted to talk to his mother um, because another thing that the government was so intent on not bringing to light was anything about Israel Keyes' childhood or background. Uh, why, uh, I, I find... In the time before AT&T Fiber Internet... Shame! 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 What did you do, love? I ran out of internet data. And they're making your shame walk. No, it's just how I feel. Shame! Shame! In the time after AT&T Fiber Internet... Nice to have unlimited internet data, right? Right. The dawn of a better internet era with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Check eligibility at att.com slash fiber. Restrictions apply. Quite mysterious. I, I have my theories. Um, but uh, I knew that Heidi, his mother, would be the greatest source of information uh, up until that point in my reporting. And so she astonishingly agreed to talk to me. She's, she's never spoken to a reporter before or since, but she talked to me about what she called her son's evil. Uh, she used that word. Um, and she did not remember, she said, some of the more extreme manifestations of, of Israel's psychopathy as he matured. Um, but, uh, as he would later tell the detectives and, and the investigators, uh, and, and, and eventually a, a court ordered, uh, a psychologist who came in to conduct the exam, um, that, uh, you know, he, he realized from a very early age, he was very different than the other children. Um, he enjoyed breaking and entering into homes. He would start out just by moving furniture around and then hiding and watching, as people came home and, and freaked out with the knowledge that someone had been in their home. Uh, so he went from that to setting fires to torturing animals in front of siblings and friends, um, trading guns on the black market. This is by the age of 14. Right. Um, I mean, when he was arrested, he wasn't very old, right? Was he 26 or 27? I don't... He was actually 34. 34, But yes, okay, no, he was not... Yeah, he was not... He was, he was still a young man, yeah. Right, so, and yeah, so he had an early, I mean, one of the interesting facts was he was friends with two kind of notorious white supremacists, these two guys that, like, back at the infancy of the internet were famous for having a shootout with police. It was, uh, oh gosh, I have it in my notes, these two, Shane and Chevy Kehoe, right? I mean, so he was yeah. hanging out in these very, I think he claimed his mom was a, a cult hunter, whatever, she would move from one cult to another, and travel around. So he had a very unique childhood. Yes. And, and, and it, it wasn't just that his parents were, as he called them, they would just shop around from cult to cult to cult and, and, and dragging their children around the nation in the process. But, um, you know, uh, Israel Keys was one of 10 children, uh, the second eldest and the eldest boy. 
uh, parents were uh, fundamentalist Christians at the time. They moved their young family from Utah up to a remote part of Washington State called Colville. Heidi told me she did this with the specific purpose of being able to raise her kids however she wanted with neighbors not seeing, with nobody calling CPS, no governmental interference. Um, these children were all home birth. They never saw a doctor. They spent seven years living in tents while their father built them a cabin by hand. Their food was the vegetables they grew and the animals that they hunted. Israel knew how to hunt and shoot and dress and cook, a, cook, cook for his family, you know, by the time he was 10. Um, they join a white supremacist church called The Ark, where a young kid befriends Chevy and Shane Kehoe, who, as you noted, grow up to become among the FBI's 10 most wanted in the 90s. When they are finally arrested, one of the brothers turns on the other and implicates him as a co-conspirator with Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah, and then the, one of them did a home invasion and killed three people too, right? Didn't, wasn't there something about that as well? Yeah, one of them was a was a, was a little girl, uh, and and he's in a in a supermax prison for life. Um, but you know, to your earlier question as to the Department of Justice withholding forty five thousand pages uh, of material in this case, I got about five thousand, and I had to spend you know I spent five years on this book because it took me that long to fight the Department of Justice in a case that is now officially considered closed, in a case which the FBI has publicly asked for help in identifying and locating other victims of Israel Keys by putting up a timeline of his known travel on the internet uh, and to withhold those for reasons of national security it was later in my reporting when I was able to shake loose some other documents that I realized this case at some point was reclassified and it went from serial murder to terrorism and when I saw that my jaw hit the floor it's incredible. Like he he was doing research into building bombs, and somebody found black powder or something. So this Israel Keys was just a monster. And I think he made some admission to the when he was being interrogated. You know, I just take it to the next level, and that's like the title of your book is that he was a true ambush predator. And I mean, the strange thing is also his books and how he kind of identified as a serial killer. Can you talk about? the stuff that he was reading or, or who he identified with? Sure. Um, you know, why was one of the greatest questions these FBI agents had uh, for Keyes. Why are you like this? What made you this way? Um, it's, it's the great existential question that has hung over forensic criminal profiling since the art and science of it was born. Um, and his answer to them would be, why not? He said uh, he didn't regard himself as that different from most people. But, you know, as you said, he just took it to another level. Um, they, the, the agents very early on had gone to the, the top criminal profilers at Quantico and said, please help us. Please give us some guidelines so we can get more uh, information out of him so he will we can get him to confess to more victims and they were basically told we don't know what to tell you we've never seen one like this before um, so they asked him about other serial killers other materials you know on the, on the raid on his house the first one they found a wealth of books and movies about serial killers both fiction and nonfiction what shocked them really was his admission that since childhood he had been learning from the FBI what not to do. Uh, one of the very first books 
he read uh, that had a profound impact on him, probably the first, was Mindhunter by John Douglas. And he said when he read that, he realized he wasn't alone. Another book that he read uh, was called Dark Dreams by the equally legendary FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood. And from that book, I mean, he used it as sort of a textbook of ideas, schemes, plots, fantasies, how to evade capture. Um, I was lucky enough to speak to Roy Hazelwood uh, about this case before he passed away. And, you know, I, I put that same question to him. You know, are monsters like these born or made? And he laughed and he said, you know, I was wondering how long it was going to take you to ask me that. And uh, he said that he, he, the earliest, um, the earliest manifestation of psychopathy he had ever come across was that of a three-year-old whose mother had caught him in the act of attempting autoerotic asphyxiation. And this mother took her toddler son to the pediatrician and was told, don't worry about it. He will grow out of it. And that child grew up to become a serial killer. Wow. And didn't he, didn't Hazelwood say this was the most terrifying, one of the most terrifying subjects he's ever encountered. I think that was from the book. The agent said that. Agent said that. I mean, that was like the rule, that was the ruling from Quantico. That was when they, when they went to those criminal profilers, those top criminal profilers, they, they said, we can't tell you anything other than this. This guy is one of the most terrifying suspects we have ever encountered. So just keep him talking. Do whatever you can to keep him talking. And there were and, and Keith realized that very quickly. So he, he gained a lot of leverage very fast in this case, and that's when things really began to go haywire. Right. I mean, it just unraveled. And he was asking him for all kinds of benefits, smoking cigars, and it seemed like he kind of wanted to feel like he was in control. But he also was kind of like he wanted to end it. He asked for he wanted an execution date. He wanted it done in a year. That was like one of his chief requirements from the police. Very strange. You know, just the whole case is so unique and strange. It's just he's a very strange person. It's, it's so wild. I mean, I, you know, when I, as I was telling you at the very beginning of our conversation, you know, when I first read about the story and I thought, oh, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on here. Like, I, I, I can't, I can't. I'm sure it's mystery upon mystery upon mystery. And it was, it was that to the millionth power. And, and, and there are still many unanswered questions. You know, it, there are a couple of remarkable things that were done right, though. You know, in, in the first week of having Keys in custody, the FBI managed to get three confessions out of him, or, or conf- a confession to three victims, to Samantha and to a couple in Essex, Vermont, this very small suburban town, this middle-aged couple named Bill and Maureen Courier, who had vanished from their home in the middle of the night in June of 2011, who were never seen again. And that case was cold, cold, cold. And Keyes knew that the FBI had his computer and he had been getting sloppy and they were going to find images of Bill and Lorraine and news stories and comments what he was leaving on news stories about how the police were never going to figure it out. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, so he, he, he confessed to that. And as he's relaying the details of what he did that night, they are so, in the truest sense of the word, they are so incredible. I mean, at first the FBI doesn't even believe he's telling the truth. Uh, and, and then they realize, he, no, he's, he's telling the truth. And he is a cluster bomb. I mean, this guy drove himself to Essex after flying into Chicago and renting a car and driving all up and down the Eastern seaboard. And he goes and he digs up a kill kit and he goes out walking one night and he's on the hunt. And this night he's looking for a man and he's staking out a parking lot in an apartment complex. And it begins to rain and in drives this little yellow VW bug and Keyes watches as this young man gets out of the car and he starts following him. And at the way Keyes describes it, suddenly the rain intensifies. The guy puts a newspaper over his head, breaks into a sprint, 
he's his arm is arced out. He is an inch from grabbing this guy by the back, and he misses. And he said, if that guy had been five seconds slower getting into his apartment, he would have been the one that night. But he's not going to be deterred. And so four hours later, he goes back out, and he sees this house on Colbert Street. And because he's a contractor, he can eyeball it and figure out what the layout is inside. And he breaks in, and within six seconds, he has tied up this middle-aged couple in their bedroom, and he gets them out of the house, and he drives them to an abandoned farmhouse that he had staked out earlier that day. And he tells the agent, I always like to look for abandoned houses, especially ones with a for sale sign in front. And he takes them into this house, and they fight. They put up a fight. Uh, but in the end, he, he has his way, and he leaves their bodies in the basement, and he tells the agents, I know, like, no one's going to go in that basement. Whoever's going to buy that house is going to buy it as a teardown, or they're going to burn it down themselves for the insurance money, and then they're going to build on it. And anybody who even steps down a tiny bit into the basement is going to figure a dead animal is rotting there, and they're not going to go anywhere near it. And he was right. Right, and those are just the ones that they were figuring out. They really don't know how many people he, his total body count really was. The official count or the official number is 11. Uh, Keith told them less than 12. Uh, Steve Payne took that to mean 11 because most people tend to round up by fives or tens. Um, but in, in my reporting and at... at at one point, it got the, the, uh, the Department of Justice and the Federal Prosecutor's Office in Anchorage were being so um, obstructionist in withholding information. I, I, I learned that, that they were hiding at least 13 hours of interrogations with Keyes. Um, and I, I had to sue them in federal court. Uh, and it, it, you know, I only got those interrogations last May. I mean, that's how tightly they're trying to grip on to all of this stuff. Why do you think um, that they were trying to hide, uh, keep that from the public? I think there are several reasons. I think one is, you know, when mistakes were made with this case. Um, I think that up in Anchorage, you know, it's a, I, I talk about what it's like, the, the psyche of Anchorage in the book. It's a very interesting, specific place. Uh, it is really kind of the Wild West. They do what they want up there, and uh, they do not enjoy government uh, interference in any way. Um, so, you know, when the federal prosecutor big-footed the case and, and almost jeopardized it multiple times, uh, and, and definitely would have had this ever gone to trial um, because this is prosecutorial misconduct. You know, it's a black eye for the FBI that this, that this went on. Sure. Um, I think, too, there, there is something to do with the investigators at some point realizing that this is a terrorism case. So the, there's a real question as to what was known and, and when was it known. Um, you know, it, one of the more interesting facets as well is, you know, Keyes uh, enlisted in the United States Army when he was, like, 18, uh, this, was, this would have been 1998. Um, and as he told the agents, I didn't use this on paper. Israel Keys, no birth certificate, no social security number, no passport, no educational records, no medical records, enlisted in the United States Army. That does not happen. Right. And it certainly didn't happen pre 9 11. Right. How do you do he it? He in the Army. Yeah. Don't know. Government right. won't say. Right. But he, there are, you did have um, interviews of people who did know him in the Army. So he's clearly in there. But mm -hmm. how does this guy get in there? Yeah, it's it's something else. What did he really do? He likely learned how to become a sniper. 
one of the you know one of the members of his platoon recalled seeing him make a gill suit by hand. Um, now gill suits are the like they're very very complicated suits. Uh, typically they're made by experts and they take three months to just make one. And those are the suits that make them look kind of like Bigfoot. Uh, and, and they can, it allows them to blend into any environment, you know, whether it's the jungle or the desert, um, and, and snipers wear these. And um, this guy recalled seeing he's making one out in the open and thinking, how, how is he allowed to be doing this? Like, you're not, you're not allowed to just be making a Geo suit, but Keys was. Right. And um, he modified his guns. He had special modifications. He's very savvy. He knew with how to weaponry. build guns yeah. from the time. Yeah, he knew how to build guns from the time he was 14, if not sooner. Um, another key, uh, you know, I, I had requested his military records, and I, I got maybe 12 pages of what I'm sure is a very interesting file. But um, I eventually learned that he had uh, he had undergone special forces training. He he passed the Army Ranger test like no problem. You know, that's a that 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 typically flushes about 60 to 70 percent of those guys out in the first week alone. Um, he was described by, by uh, guys he served with as a, as a quote-unquote super soldier who could, uh, you know, he could walk for 13 miles with 150 pounds on his back and not break a sweat. He was already quite a lethal weapon back then. Right, so, and he, you know, he might have started his, his murdering prior to joining the Army, though, right? I believe he did. You know, it's funny. Steve Payne told me he thought it was right after getting out of the military. Heidi, his mother, told me she thought the same thing, or possibly around the time he was in Egypt for a little bit. But um, I got um, records of, of calls and emails that came into the FBI once they asked for help. And um, I was able to cross-reference those with the FBI, they made one timeline of Keyes' travels public, right? But I got a hold of the FBI's secret internal timeline of Keyes' travels, which is far more specific uh, and far more detailed and reminding because there's one thing I want to tell you about the very last entry of his known travels. Mm -hmm. um, but there was, well, there was more than one case in Colville, Washington, in the mid-90s, the disappearance and murder of two little girls up there and the death of one of the girls' mothers who was found burned to death in a trailer or who was murdered and the fire was used to cover it up. Keith told investigators the first thing I ever burned down was a trailer. The first little girl to go missing and who was later found dead, murdered, was a 12-year-old named Julie Harris. She was called the most famous resident she was a Paralympian who wore prosthetic feet. When Keyes was in custody, the two FBI agents who were working this case in Washington flew up to Anchorage, and they asked them specifically about these little girls. Uh, and in fact, they had located Keyes' ex-fiance, uh, who, who was shocked that Keyes had been arrested for the uh, abduction and murder of Samantha Koenig, but at the end of the, of the interview with her, the agent said to her, do you have any questions for us? And she says, yes, did he kill those two little girls in Colville? So they're definitely looking at him for that. And those are two cases there, uh, among several that I, I explore in the book right. uh, that I, I think should definitely be reopened and, and looked at as, as having him the, the suspect. And he was constantly moving. He's moving between the lower 48, Alaska, uh, Florida. He's all over the place. So they don't really know. You mentioned he was very similar MO to the Boca Killer, unsolved murders all over the place. They don't really know. And he seemed to let on that that was what he was up to. I mean, there's so much more in the book. The details are great. It's just a, just an amazing amount of research, research you did. So I, I compliment you for that. We're at about 50 minutes right now, Maureen. Is there anything that you'd like to add or anything we missed? I want to tell you about that last entry okay. in the secret timeline. It took two weeks to extradite Israel Keys from Texas to Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, the FBI would never tell me why. Um, on that timeline is an unexplained stop 
in Oklahoma City? What date? Um, it would have been, I don't have the document in front of me, but it would have been in between his arrest in Texas uh, and his extradition to wow. Anchorage. So that would have been in the spring of 2012. So why do you think that he stopped? The, the U.S. Marshals stopped with him in Oklahoma City, which is unusual because if you are flying anywhere from the lower 48 to Anchorage, which I've done, uh, you typically stop in Seattle. That's the closest hub to then get to Anchorage. Why do you think that uh, he stopped it? Why do you think they stopped him in Oklahoma City? I'm not quite sure, but, you know, his association with the Kehoe brothers, one Kehoe brothers association with Timothy McVeigh, allegedly, um, he's his invocation of Timothy McVeigh as someone everyone he grew up with regarded as a hero. Uh, his invocation of Timothy McVeigh as a reason he should get the death penalty just as fast. Um, and referencing his white supremacist roots, uh, telling the agents he, uh, he built bombs to breach federal land, and the uh, information he shared with the guy he served with that on property he owned in upstate New York in a small town called Constable, he had buried there 9,000 rounds of Black Talon ammunition. Black Talon, um, that's the so-called cop killer bullet that has been uh, outlawed for many, many years. Wow, amazing. So what exactly was he up to? I guess we'll never know, but uh, there's a lot more information. Oh, I think we will. Okay, I think good. we will, and I, I hope the book shakes loose. Some, some more information. I think there's a lot to be I uncovered. hope so. There's probably some more people out there who know of him, who've spent time with him, who've run into him. I mean, you said in the book a lot of people after he was arrested said they saw him all over the place. Whether those st stories are legitimate or not is an, uh, you know, not something I know. But, you know, hopefully people will. Uh, it's not that long ago, tw 2012. Hopefully this will jog some memories. So um, is there any way people can get in touch with you? Or do you have social media or... Anything like that? Yeah, I am. Uh, my website is MaureenCallahan.net. Uh, I'm also a critic at large at the New York Post, and you can always reach me there. Um, I can also, um, you can reach out. Actually, I really am not on social media. Otherwise, that's, that's it. Well, yeah. if you have your own website, you know, maybe people can contact you there. Again, the title of the book, excellent book, is American Predator. The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. Maureen, thank you very much. Thank you so much, William. Okay, have a good night. You too. Okay, bye. bye.